Hello, kindred spirits. Welcome to another episode of Kindred Spirits Book Club, where two grown-ass ladies geek out about Anne of Green Gables. I'm Regan Duffy, and I'm here with my co-host, Kelly Gerner. Kelly, welcome. Tell me, what are you reading this week? Oh, Regan, that is a loaded question. So I just finished Allie Hazelwood's book, The Love Hypothesis, and I have been dying to talk to someone about it. Have you read this book? No, I'm planning on borrowing it from you. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's great. I was with um, you when you bought it, I think, at the <laughs> office. And I think I was like, oh, you're buying that? Maybe I'll just borrow it from you. Mm-hmm. So I, I finally got around to reading it. And it turns out that it grew out of Raylo fanfic. Do you know what that is? Was oh, that Ray and Kylo Ren from yes. Star Wars? Yes, yes, yes. Okay. My husband has been making fun of me for literally years because every time I've seen one of those newer movies with Kylo Ren and Ray in them, I'm always like, now kiss. And my husband is like, no, that's not, they're not, there's not a thing. And I'm all there. No. I, so there's I agree, no thing. I agree with your husband because I don't like Kylo Ren. I do not find that kind of angsty. No, I want better for Ray than Kylo Ren. I mean, that's a very fair point, but the internet does not agree with you and neither I do know. I because... <laughs> Turns out there is a healthy Raylo fanfic universe out there. And so Allie Hazelwood wrote Raylo fanfic and I guess adapted it into this novel, The Love Hypothesis. It's set on the Stanford campus among science graduate students. One of the things I thought was really interesting is that this is a book that on paper should not work for me. The premise is that it's a fake dating trope. There's a very thin reason for why the two of them have to pretend to be dating, which I hate that. It never happens in real life. There's never a reason you have to fake date someone. I also get really anxious about depictions of really high-stress jobs, and they both have a really high-stress jobs in academia in this book. So I was like, oh, I'm not sure if this is going to work for me. But it really did. The book was so delicious. Allie Hazelwood, the author, has a really unique voice. She just has this wonderful spark that you don't see everywhere. She kind of reminded me of Emily Henry in that way, Ooh. where just when you pick up one of those books, you're like, oh, this lady is something special. She's doing different, interesting things. And I will say, normally I do like more than one spicy scene in my romance novels. This one only had one, but it is very good. (laughs) (laughs) Extremely enjoyable. 10 out of 10, no notes. So that was Allie Hazelwood's The Love Hypothesis. Okay, on my list. (laughs) So what are you reading? I just finished When Women Were Dragons by Kelly Barnhill, and I really loved it. So Kelly Barnhill has primarily written middle grade fantasy, and she's written a few that I have adored. She wrote The Girl Who Drank the Moon, which is amazing. Yeah, that book is great. It's a a great book. So this is for, this is adult. Okay. And the premise is it's an alternative version of our world. It's 1950s America, but there's this phenomenon that happens when women, certain women are overcome with rage they step out of their skin and turn into dragons and fly away. Oh, I love that. Yeah. And so one of the major premises is that early on in the the main character's life, there was the mass dragoning of 1957, in which I don't remember the number, like 620,000 women all dragoned on the same day. We had a mass dragoning. Yeah. And kind of 
what happens and the way the culture tries to forget about it. And, you know, it's a big parable, I think, particularly for women's rage and systematic oppression and all of those sort of things. It's maybe a little obvious. It's not subtle in its parable-likeness, but I really enjoyed it. I thought it was well done and I highly recommend it. I'm sad that we did not all turn into dragons when we found out about the road decision. I think a mass dragoning would have been very appropriate in that context. So in the afterward, Kelly Barnhill notes that she wrote this during the pandemic, sort of inspired by Christine Blasley Ford's testimony. Oh, sure. Against justice. And that kind of collective anger, women's Mm -hmm. anger, right? And the way that as society, we keep on trying to forget it and ignore it. It, It's not that story, but that was the space that she was in when she started writing it. Yeah, I can see that. Wow. Okay. I really want to read that. That sounds fascinating. When women were dragons. Okay. Well, obviously the next time we get together, we will swap. Yes. (laughs) Thanks listeners for sticking with us through our book digressions, but now we are on to our kindred spirit of the episode. Our kindred spirit this episode is Miss Josephine Barry, Diana's father's elderly aunt. Aunt Josephine is rich, elegant, and very proper. When Diana and Anne unknowingly leap into her spare room bed, Aunt Josephine is furious with the girls. Anne apologizes in her signature charming way, and Aunt Josephine is amused by the Anne girl, promising to forgive Anne and Diana if Anne visits with her. Anne and Aunt Josephine become close, and Anne finds in her another kindred spirit. Our quote of the episode comes from the moment that Anne and Miss Barry meet. Miss Josephine Barry, thin, prim, and rigid, was knitting fiercely by the fire, her wrath quite unappeased and her eyes snapping through her gold-rimmed glasses. She wheeled around in her chair, expecting to see Diana, and beheld a white-faced girl whose great eyes were brimmed up with a mixture of desperate courage and shrinking terror. "'Who are you?' demanded Miss Josephine Barry without ceremony. "'I'm Anne of Green Gables,' said the small visitor tremulously, clasping her hands with her characteristic gesture. "'And I've come to confess, if you please.'" So for our story club this week, we wanted to explore the singular Miss Barry who, although she only shows up a few times in the book, leaves a huge impression on Anne and on the reader. Miss Josephine Barry is somewhat mysteriously rich, lives an opulent life, and embodies a lot of the trappings of wealth that young Anne has always longed for. All the women in Anne of Green Gables provide windows for Anne into what her own life could be like as she grows. Last episode, we talked about the women who provided a more conventional model of womanhood for Anne, Mrs. Lynde, Mrs. Allen, and Mrs. Barry, Diana's mother. And we've also explored Marilla and Miss Stacy as models for Anne as well. Miss Stacy inspiring Anne to become a teacher, and Marilla providing a view of what unmarried life in a rural community is like for a woman, as well as coming to motherhood in an unconventional way. But Miss Barry is unique. She's wealthy in a way that none of the other women in Anne's life are. She's unmarried, like Marilla and Miss Stacy, but it's not clear if she's ever worked. It sounds like she hasn't. She has no children of her own, and although she is an aunt to Diana and Minnie May, 
prior to Anne's arrival, it doesn't sound like she has a particularly warm relationship with them. Miss Barry is one of the many single and unmarried women in this series who's portrayed as contented and not some sort of cautionary tale. And that is really something that sets Maud as a writer apart. It was, and it is, it continues to be a convention of popular literature that a single woman is either a character to be pitied or avoided, right? That classic old maid trope. It's that tragic single woman who's such a common figure in Western storytelling, whether it's the eerily tragic Miss Havisham from Great Expectations or the tragically neurotic Bridget Jones. The cultural narrative has long been that the worst thing a woman can be is single. It's remarkable, then, that this is a trope that Maud doesn't go for at all, especially not in the Anne books. Not only does Anne have many single women in her life who are setting the example that a woman does not need to be partnered to be fulfilled, but Anne herself is not too interested in love or marriage in any way but abstractly until late into the third book. Contrast her interest in romantic love and partnership to her investment in her friends, whether with her bosom friend Diana in Avonlea or her all-girl Redmond College coterie living together at Patty's place. Up until Anne actually does marry, she lives exclusively in these women-centric situations where single women are taking care of each other, or in her friend Philippa's words when describing Patty's place, quote, the fun of homemaking without the bother of a husband. <laughs> <laughs> Anne's world is filled with aunts, widows, and spinsters who provide this alternative to married life. And Miss Barry is one of the many incredible single ladies who tells Anne and the reader that happiness is not dependent on romantic heterosexual love. When we first meet Miss Barry, it's when Anne and Diana leap on her in the middle of the night, not realizing that she was unexpectedly staying in the spare room. Which, by the way, no one thought to leave the girls a note saying, don't stay in the spare room, your aunt is in there? I mean, even if they hadn't jumped on her, how would they have guessed that she was there? No, seriously, I, this is Diana's mom's fault. I mean, someone needed to leave these girls a note. Honestly. So the passage from the book goes, Oh, who was it? What was it? Whispered Anne, her teeth chattering with cold and fright. It was Aunt Josephine, said Diana, gasping with laughter. Oh, Anne, it was Aunt Josephine, however she came to be there. Oh, and I know she will be furious. It's dreadful. It's really dreadful. But did you ever know anything so funny, Anne? Who is your Aunt Josephine? She's father's aunt, and she lives in Charlottetown. She's awfully old, 70 anyhow, and I don't believe she was ever a little girl. We were expecting her out for a visit, but not so soon. She's awfully prim and proper, and she'll scold dreadfully about this, I know. Well, we'll have to sleep with Minnie May, and you can't think how she kicks. Reagan, my question from this is really, does Diana always have to sleep with Minnie May? Good question. Does Diana not have her own bed? And now three girls are all going to be getting into one bed, and Diana and Minnie May? Unclear. Unclear. It, what, very what unclear. Happened. Yeah. <laughs> well, the next morning, the girls are up well before Miss Barry, and so Anne has left without having to reckon directly with the leaping incident. Naturally, it's Mrs. Lynde who tells Anne later that day that Miss Barry is very angry about what happened, Mrs. Lynde having heard it from Diana's mother already. Word travels fast to Mrs. Lynde. Of course. Of course, Mrs. Lynde is the one who knows before, you know, Anne even knows what the consequences of this. Absolutely. Mrs. Lynde shares that Miss Barry is so angry that she has determined not to pay for Diana's music lessons, which she had previously promised. 
Mrs. Lynn finds it all very amusing, but Anne is quite contrite, especially because it's Diana who is reaping the repercussions of the event, not Anne herself. So she takes herself over to Diana's to apologize. Diana confides in Anne, she was fairly dancing with rage and oh, how she scolded. She said I was the worst behaved girl she ever saw and that my parents ought to be ashamed of the way they brought me up. She says she won't stay and I'm sure I don't care, but father and mother do. Diana is too loyal a friend to throw Anne under the bus here, but Anne is determined to confess to Miss Barry, having had a lot of recent experience with confessions lately. Between apologizing to Mrs. Lynde and to Marilla, as well as to Mrs. Barry, Anne spends a lot of her time apologizing for her impulsivity. She's pretty good at it. This also goes to show how Anne's relationship with Mrs. Barry has been repaired. I guess saving Minnie May's life really gave Anne a pass with the Barrys. Earlier in this book, Mrs. Barry would have been livid with Anne and blaming Anne to Miss Barry, I would assume. No, I think that's right. You know, Diana's mother pre the Minnie May incident would have absolutely assumed that Anne was mostly to blame for this situation. So the fact that she even let Anne back in the house to apologize to Aunt Josephine is a big deal. This is another one of Anne's relationships that starts out on a pretty rocky footing. And then eventually she has to kind of find her way through it. So, and in this case, Anne's confession uh, goes quite well. Anne not only confesses that jumping on the bed was her idea, not Diana, she actually challenges Miss Barry to imagine what the experience was like from Anne's point of view. Anne is properly sympathetic to Miss Barry, but she doesn't let Miss Barry browbeat her either. And Miss Barry is used to people being afraid of her and to wielding her money as her power, but Anne's willingness to confront her, to stand up for Diana, is at first a novelty, but then... Maybe it also makes her realize that having folks be afraid of her and respect her is not the same thing as being connected to her. I think that maybe it's made her more lonely than she has even realized. Anne's confession also opens the door for Miss Barry to connect with Anne, a human connection she didn't realize she was even missing till then. Miss Barry says, I've made up my mind to stay simply for sake of getting better acquainted with that Anne girl. She amuses me. And at my time of life, an amusing person is a rarity. In Miss Barry's month visiting with Diana's family, it seems that she builds a real relationship with Anne. Here is a person who wants nothing from her except forgiveness. Anne isn't cowed by Miss Barry's money and the power that implies, and Anne's frankness, imagination, and general positive outlook let her actually talk to Miss Barry in the way that few other people do. Anne visits Miss Barry frequently over her month at Diana's house, and they become firm friends throughout. When Miss Barry went away at the end of the month, she says, Remember you, Anne girl, when you come to town, you're to visit me, and I'll put you in my very sparest spare room bed to sleep. Miss Barry was a kindred spirit after all, Anne confided to Marilla. You wouldn't think so to look at her, but she is. You don't find it right out at first, as in Matthew's case, but after a while, you come to see it. Kindred spirits are not so scarce as I used to think. It's splendid to find out that there are so many of them in the world. Miss Barry's influence pops up briefly the following winter. She sends, as a Christmas present, to Anne a pair of fancy slippers that Anne wears with her first puffed sleeve dress to the Christmas concert, thus completing Anne's outfit. Miss Barry is a benefactor from afar, giving Anne just what she needs, which is a pair of the daintiest little kid slippers with beaded toes and satin bows and glistening buckles. So pretty. I really want a pair. I know that's really thoughtful and lovely of her to include Anne and her Christmas gift giving as well. 
We next see Miss Barry herself the following September when she invites Anne and Diana to visit her in Charlottetown and to see the exhibition, which I think is a state fair type of thing. Yeah, I think that's right. And let's be real. She's inviting Anne, but she has to include Diana. (laughs) Charlottetown is 30 miles away, quite a drive by horse and buggy, and it's the nearest city to Avonlea. It's the capital of Prince Edward Island. The title of this chapter is An Epoch in Anne's Life, and this is truly a defining moment for Anne. Miss Barry lives in a fine old mansion called Beechwood and greets Anne at the door with, so you've come to see me at last, you Anne girl, she said. Mercy, child, how you've grown. You're taller than I am, I declare. And you're ever so much better looking than you used to be, too. But I dare say you know that without being told. Indeed, I didn't, said Anne radiantly. I know I'm not so freckled as I used to be, so I've much to be thankful for. But I really hadn't dared to hope there was any other improvement. I'm so glad you think there is, Miss Barry. Miss Barry's home is truly grand, and Diana had never been there before which says something a bit about Miss Barry and her relationship with her family. Anne, who has spent her life dreaming about opulence, imagining velvet carpet for her room at Green Gables and writing stories about wealthy heroines, immediately notices. Velvet carpet, sighed Anne luxuriously, and silk curtains. I've dreamed of such things, Diana. But do you know, I don't believe I feel very comfortable with them after all. There are so many things in this room and all so splendid that there's no scope for imagination. This trip was crammed full of special experiences, Miss Barry being determined to give the girls, especially Anne, a wonderful trip. They go to the exhibition where they see lots of displays of beautiful handmade items. They watch horse races and they have their fortunes told. They go for a drive in the park and they go to a concert where a noted prima donna was singing. And then they follow that up with ice cream at 11 o'clock at night. Diana declares that she was born for city life, but Anne has the important realization that as glamorous a city life and let it be said city life for the wealthy may be, she's happier at home at Green Gables. Anne spent her years when she was unwanted and impoverished, coping by having a vivid and rich imaginary life that she populated with beautiful people and all the trappings of wealth. She filled in the emptiness with imaginary luxury. But now, over two years into her time at Green Gables, she's realizing that all that luxury isn't meaningful anymore. Now she has a true home. A mansion isn't as satisfying as a place where she truly belongs, filled with people who love her. This experience with Miss Barry helps Anne see that she doesn't need wealth and a fancy life to be happy, that she already has what makes her happy. Anne tells Marilla, And I came to the conclusion, Marilla, that I wasn't born for city life and that I was glad of it. It's nice to be eating ice cream at brilliant restaurants at 11 o'clock at night once in a while. But as a regular thing, I'd rather be in the East Gable at 11, sound asleep, but kind of knowing, even in my sleep, that the stars were shining outside and that the wind was blowing in the firs across the brook. As they ride back to Green Gables, Anne reflects how happy she is to be going home. And after all the rich and fancy food, she is delighted that Marilla has made her broiled chicken a meal specifically made with love for Anne. And there's Marilla with her practical, concrete way of showing Anne love. Yep. Anne ends her account of her visit by saying, I've had a splendid time and I feel that it marks an epoch in my life, but the best of it all was the coming home. Mm. I think we all have to go away from home for a bit to realize how nice it is to be back. I know for me, That's how I always know that someplace has become home because I'm filled with the thrill of belonging when I come back. 
I moved a lot as a young adult, kind of between my parents selling our childhood home and their divorce and moving and moving a bunch of places between college and graduate school. I really felt that loss of not having a childhood home base very keenly. I think I spent a lot of time feeling like I didn't have a home and realizing eventually that I had to make it for myself. And each of those times, I really have a vivid memory of returning from a trip to visit my family and realizing that I was coming home, not leaving home. And that relief of feeling that it's so good to be back where I belong. I really have this memory, actually, of coming back. I was in college in New York City, and I was coming back from a trip, and my dad was driving me back to New York. And there's kind of this this place where you come kind of come up over the hill and you see New York City all before you as you're driving to it and having this moment of like, oh, I live there. I'm not visiting there. I live there. And I had that same experience after I moved to Los Angeles, one of my trips back east, flying as we're flying into LAX and we're getting close to landing, like looking out and being like, oh, home. Yeah. It's such an interesting moment of growth when you realize that if you're leaving your parents' house and you're going back to where you live, like you're going to your home that isn't their home. Yeah. You're going to the home that you created yourself with the people you chose and the sort of the things that make you happy. And I think that it's such an interesting moment for Anne here because she had this whole idea of what she thought she wanted. And then once she had a kind of a glimpse of it for real, she realized that that wasn't necessary anymore because she had the actual love and belonging that comes from having a real home. Yeah. So we see that following this Charlottetown adventure, Anne is less prone to dreaming of opulence and finery and more content with her reality of being Anne of Green Gables. She doesn't need the escapism of that fantasy life because her real life is rich and fulfilling in a way that she could not imagine for herself when she was younger. And as a young child, she was neglected materially, wearing only hand-me-downs and not having any real possessions of her own. So she filled in the gaps by imagining lavish riches. But she was also deeply neglected emotionally. But she didn't know what to imagine in that place. We see that Anne imagined friends with herself to cope with loneliness. But she didn't know what she was truly missing in terms of parents or a cozy, sweet, supportive home life. So she couldn't even imagine it for herself. And it turns out that once her emotional neglect had been filled with the haven of Green Gables, Marilla and Matthew, she didn't need to imagine luxury and wealth anymore. Yeah, it really is this moving moment where you realize how much Anne has grown and how much she doesn't need fantasy. Mm -hmm. Anne is at a point in her maturing where... It's not that she becomes less fanciful or less poetical or less appreciative of the beauty in her world, but she doesn't need that sort of elaborate high fantasy to fill in the gaps anymore. She really can find the romance and the beauty in the life that is hers and that's accessible to her. Yeah, I think that's very true. In the latter part of the book, Ms. Barry plays a supportive role. She hosts Anne when she comes to Charlottetown to sit for the Queen's exam. And she finds Anne a safe and reputable boarding house for her year at Queens. She's present at the commencement ceremony from Queens, sharing that proud moment with Marilla and Matthew. And what's interesting about Miss Barry is that we get a bit more of her viewpoint than we do with some of the other women of Avonlea. We get to see a bit of how Anne changes Miss Barry in unexpected ways. Mm -hmm. 
So we notice that in Anne's first encounter with Miss Barry, we can compare how she responds to Anne's apology to how Mrs. Lynde and Mrs. Barry have responded in the past. Miss Barry, Miss Josephine Barry, instead of holding a grudge, allows herself to be charmed by Anne, while Mrs. Barry was offended, even thinking that Anne was mocking her. And Mrs. Lynde took Anne's over-the-top drama very literally. Miss Barry takes Anne seriously, but not literally, and she finds the humor in Anne. Anne notices that she amuses Miss Barry, which is often how Miss Barry thinks of Anne initially, as amusement. That's not a particularly mutual relationship to be thought of as amusement. And Anne tells Marilla, Miss Barry generally laughed at anything I said, even when I said the most solemn things. I don't think I liked it, Marilla, because I wasn't trying to be funny. But she is a most hospitable lady, and she treated us royally. But we see from Miss Barry's perspective that Anne brings something more than amusement with her eventually. At the end of their trip, Miss Barry says, Well, I hope you've enjoyed yourselves. Indeed we have, said Diana. And you, Anne girl? I've enjoyed every minute of the time, said Anne, throwing her arms impulsively about the old woman's neck and kissing her wrinkled cheek. Diana would never have dared to do such a thing and felt rather aghast at Anne's freedom. But Miss Barry was pleased and she stood on her veranda and watched the buggy out of sight. Then she went back into her big house with a sigh. It seemed very lonely, lacking those fresh young lives. Miss Barry was a rather selfish old lady, if the truth must be told, and she had never cared much for anybody but herself. She valued people only as they were of service to her or amused her. Anne had amused her and consequently stood high in the old lady's good graces. But Miss Barry found herself thinking less about Anne's quaint speeches than of her fresh enthusiasms, her transparent emotions, her little winning ways, and the sweetness of her eyes and lips. I thought Marilla Cuthbert was an old fool when I heard she'd adopted a girl out of an orphan asylum, she said to herself, but I guess she didn't make much of a mistake after all. If I had a child like Anne in the house all the time, I'd be a better and happier woman. I think it's so interesting here that Miss Barry gets this growth arc that the only other woman in the text gets is really Marilla. That's really true. We don't really hear Mrs. Barry's inner thoughts very often or Mrs. Lynn's or even Mrs. Allen's. No, and as close and meaningful as those relationships are to Anne, those women are pretty static. They sort of represent what they represent. Whereas Miss Barry is affected by Anne as Anne is affected by her. There becomes a mutuality of their connection. Well, I think Anne brings her gift for authentic connection to Miss Barry. It's not just Anne's youth, although there's something there as well. Mm -hmm. I think there's always something delightful to see the world, which we may have started to take for granted as adults through new young eyes. And children often help us have that perspective. Anyone who's hung out with a kid and seen the way they've been excited about something that you think is boring or not all that interesting really helps you gain a new perspective on life. Oh yeah, that's one of the most fun things about hanging out with kids. For sure. I think Anne brings to Miss Barry that ability to enjoy things wholeheartedly, which it really sounds like Miss Barry has been missing. And by making a connection with Anne, Miss Barry feels valued in a more holistic way, not just for her money, but because Anne enjoys her company. Yeah, Anne leaves with a kiss on the cheek and a genuine gratitude for what Miss Barry was able to give to them. 
you know, Diana's is sort of perfunctory and, you know, saying goodbye and thank you and all that. But Anne is full of emotion and appreciation for what she got to experience with Miss Barry. Yeah. And that feels really lovely. Yeah. yeah Miss Barry says, that Anne girl improves all the time. I get tired of other girls. There is such a provoking and eternal sameness about them. Anne has as many shades as a rainbow and every shade is the prettiest while it lasts. I don't know that she is as amusing as she was when she was a child, but she makes me love her. And I like people who make me love them. It saves me so much trouble in making myself love them. She's so funny. Miss <laughs> Barry is such a funny character. <laughs> and I love how she is this kind of like a crab character, right? Tough outer shell inside, like squishy and soft. So she's like, oh, it saves me the trouble of having to fall in love with them. But really, no, she loves people. And she's genuinely charmed by someone like Anne who wears her heart on her sleeve and is such a has such a different outlook on life. I agree. The last we see of Miss Barry is her beaming at Anne's commencement. But there is a coda to her influence on Anne's life in a later book. Miss Barry dies in the third book, Anne of the Island, and she leaves Anne $1,000 in her will, which lets Anne continue her education without having to work at the same time. A last little gift from this kindred spirit. Oh, Miss Barry, so great. So for our Birch Path this week, we are going to get into a topic that we have been dying to talk about. To be honest, this is one of the reasons I wanted to start this podcast was <laughs> to answer this question. <laughs> and that is how on earth did Miss Barry get so very rich? This is the question. <laughs> so Miss Barry, who Diana tells us is in her 70s, would have been born right around 1800. We don't know too much about her origins, where she was born. Was she born in PEI or elsewhere in Canada? Was she an English or Scottish immigrant like many people at that time were? The real question about the wealth, there were only a few ways that an unmarried woman would have become independently wealthy at this time. It's not out of the realm of possibility that Miss Barry earned her money in some way, but the text never tells us that she was in business or that she worked. I mean, certainly by the time we meet her, she's older, you know, maybe she's retired, but she's not introduced as Aunt Josephine, the great industrialist, right? She's just like father's rich old aunt. A much more likely source of Miss Barry's wealth is that she inherited it. But that also would have been unusual for this time. Up until 1851, male primogeniture was the law of the land in Canada, meaning that the firstborn male descendant inherited the wealth of his father. If there was no male son, a younger brother, a nephew, or male cousin would inherit the family estate over a daughter. And a good recent example of this is Downton Abbey. If you ever watched that show, you'll recall that the Earl of Grantham couldn't leave his vast estate to his three daughters, and instead a distant cousin was going to inherit. That is exactly what I was thinking of when you were talking about it, because that is my only experience with this. Right. <laughs> I think in pop culture, that's probably uh, the most recent example. So under primogeniture, a father could provide a dowry for his daughters, but that was pretty much it. And even a lavish dowry probably would not permit a woman to live alone and unmarried for her whole life in the kind of splendor and opulence that Miss Barry enjoys. For an unmarried woman to inherit anything more significant than a dowry, it would have had to come from a source of wealth other than her father. So if her mother or another female relative had her own property or money, she could theoretically leave that to her daughter. But this is where things get tricky. 
Keep in mind that a woman's money and property became her husband's property upon marriage. So for a woman to have her own wealth and then keep it after a marriage would have required a lot of legal maneuvering. Hmm. It's not that it never happened, but it was pretty rare. Right. It sounds like it's a very specific set of circumstances that would have to happen. Right. Now, like I said, In 1851, male primogeniture in Canada was repealed, so family wealth could be divided among children. But even then, it still would have been really unusual for a daughter to inherit. The custom at the time was that family wealth was left to sons, and only a dowry was given to daughter, because she, of course, would be expected to marry a man who inherited his own family wealth. Knowing what we know about how generational wealth was passed down in the 19th century in Canada, it still strikes me as really strange that Miss Barry, an unmarried woman, is so much wealthier than the Avonlea Berries. Yes, it is possible that Miss Barry was gifted her dowry when she didn't marry. And it is possible that she inherited some money or property that was not subject to primogeniture laws from a female friend or relative, much as she herself will eventually bequeath $1,000 to Anne. And it's possible that she inherited property or land and collected rents. It's possible that she took whatever money and property she had and made savvy investments. Certainly, there were numerous opportunities to create wealth in a resource-rich new nation like Canada. There is a path to wealth there, although it would have been unorthodox. But my real question here is, how did she come to amass so much more wealth than her nephew, Mr. Barry? Surely Aunt Josephine's brother, who would be Diana's paternal grandfather, he would have inherited the Barry family wealth himself. And so the whole Barry clan should also be living large in Charlottetown. I think the answer here is once again, primogeniture. (laughs) I think that Miss Barry may have had more than one brother. The eldest one who inherited the family wealth and a younger one who likely would have gone into a professional field like law, the clergy, medicine, banking, civil service, or the military. Or farming. (laughs) Well, farmers generally did not come from wealthy families. Hmm. That, That wasn't really seen as the kind of job that like the son of a wealthy man would have. So this makes me think that Diana's family comes from that non inheriting son. Which would mean that Diana's dad has an uncle somewhere who has all the family wealth, while he was raised in much more modest circumstances and is now making his way as a farmer. I can't help but think that it must rankle them to be the relatives who didn't benefit from inheritance by primogeniture. And maybe that's another clue about why Mrs. Barry is so fastidious about Diana, about her appearance and her reputation. She has this deep sense of wanting Diana to be able to access some of the wealth and connections from the other branches of the family tree. So I'm going to pause and ask you how that sits with you. Are you satisfied with that as an explanation for why Miss Berry is so wealthy while the Avonlea Berries are less so? Hmm. I'm not convinced there's another uncle somewhere. I think it's possible that the inheriting son was Mr. Berry's father, but he invested that money in land and the farm because either farming or fishing were the primary industries in Prince Edward Island, right? Yeah, that's right. So farming, even for a farmer who started from some wealth, tends to be a profession where a lot of the wealth isn't particularly liquid, and it's rather easy to lose in a few bad harvests and to have to gradually sell off parts of the farm. And the Berries, while not as flagrantly wealthy as Miss Berry, are certainly well enough to do. Mr. Berry's easily able to rent the Green Gables farm after Matthew dies. Or maybe Mr. Berry's father lost some of his wealth in a bad investment, but Miss Berry built her wealth with some savvy investments. Ooh, but I do have another theory though. What if Miss Barry and Mr. Barry's father were only half siblings? 
It would not be unusual for a woman to remarry after being widowed, even if she had had a child previously. So perhaps Miss Barry inherited her father's wealth because there were no other blood heirs. And Mr. Barry Sr. had a different dad. So he only got like a normal amount of money. Yeah, any of that could be true. I think those are actually some really interesting theories. I mean, we truly, we don't know anything about the family makeup. There could have been, yeah, like a a step-parent or half-sibling or all sorts of those relationships could be there. We just don't know. And it's, of course, very possible to lose money from bad investments or gain more money from good. It's just curious to me. The Berries are like a normal family. They live on a farm. There's nothing special about them. I I agree. You're right. They are reasonably comfortable. But just it seems like in contrast, Miss Barry is so crazy wealthy. Well, I do think the most likely explanation is that Maude just needed Anne to have a wealthy benefactor for this experience. I'm not sure she worked out how Miss Barry got rich, uh, but I don't know. <laughs> that that may very well be the practical answer. But so since I've been thinking about this for a while. I know you have. <laughs> The other option. Listeners, let me tell you, Kelly has been literally thinking about this since the very first time we have discussed having an Anna Green Gables podcast. Yeah, it's on page one of our notes around this podcast. How how did Miss Barry get money? So, okay, so she didn't inherit it. The other option is that she earned it, right? And this is what I think is really intriguing because at that time, there would have been so few ways to do it. Now, I would argue that the text gives us only one really important clue that supports the argument that Miss Barry earned her own money, and that's the fact that she's unmarried. As I explained earlier, any money or property that a woman earned or received would have become the property of her husband if she was married. So the only way a woman could earn and keep her own money legally at this time was, in fact, to be unmarried. Rude. Oh, I know. It's terrible. But the thing was, of course, the catch-22 here is that there weren't too many avenues of employment that were even open to women. So I'm going to give you a few ideas of the kinds of professions that Miss Barry might have had, Reagan, and you can let me know what you think. Okay. Then, as now, most women who worked earned very little in caretaking professions like domestic service and nursing. Some women, like Anne, would have been able to make a living as a teacher or a school principal or somehow, you know, a governess, somehow in education, right? And then some women like Maude would make a living as a writer. There are also uh, women journalists, shop clerks, sort of these like professional-ish classes. And then, of course, you had some women who were able to earn a good living as performers or artists. In fact, one of the wealthiest women in the 19th century was a famous opera singer. And then I think the last option here is that Miss Barry could have been some kind of an entrepreneur. So whether she's the owner of a small enterprise or a shop or, you know, maybe she's sort of a Canadian Maritimes Lady Robber Baron, right? And she has a fortune <laughs> in, in fishing or oil or something like that. So anyway, of these options, what do you think is the most plausible, given what we know about Miss Barry and her standard of living? Okay, I am a firm believer that if Miss Barry made her money, it was through investment, possibly of the shady sort. Well, meaning that she would have had to start with some money, right? Because you can't invest nothing. Yeah. But I can't imagine her doing any day-to-day work at all. So I was thinking for investment that she's starting from the place of a dowry. Sure. That could be possible. Right. So even if it's not huge, it's something, right? Right. $1,000, $2,000, something of that nature, right? I can't imagine her actually doing any day-to-day work at all. Teachers do not get rich from their salaries. Then as now, 
she definitely wasn't amassing any kind of wealth through something like journalism or working in a store. I think if she had earned it through some sort of creative endeavor, like writing or performance, I think we would have been told that because she would be famous, not just rich to have that kind of wealth. And that would be something that Diana would know that would probably be something that Anne would be very interested and excited about. Yeah, the the text would have told us that because the girls would have been so interested in it for sure. Absolutely. I could certainly see Diana not really knowing or caring about if she's into investment or she inherited from. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Right. Like know or care about that sort of thing. But if she was like stock market. (laughs) Yeah. But if she was some sort of famous actress or writer or poet of some sort, elocutionist, we see some of those in Anne's books. We would have heard about that. Yeah. Okay. So there's no way this is the case, but could you imagine if in her youth, Miss Barry had been some sort of burlesque performer away in a big city like Toronto or New York and had some very wealthy men in her pocket? Okay. Well, hold that thought, Reagan. Hold okay. that thought. I'm holding that thought. <laughs> I'm thinking of Miss Perry performing burlesque. Yeah. Hold that mental image in your mind. So I agree with you. Yeah. I don't think it could be domestic service or nursing or teaching or, or anything like that. Right. And if she was in an artist or performer, something that Anna and Diana would have been interested in, we would know. I am wondering if maybe she was kind of like a titan of industry. And this really was a great time to make money if you had that kind of initial investment and could afford your own like factory or railroad line or shares of a mine or a shipping company. The only thing is women didn't do that. Right. Right. I mean, that's just not the kind of work that women were doing at that time. A woman wouldn't have been taken seriously in that Million. She would need some sort of shell corporation with some totally. with a man uh, to do the investing for her. Totally. And we just don't have any evidence in the text that she does that kind of work. I mean, the thing about Miss Barry and what makes it such a fun mystery for me is that she's just rich. Like the money appeared from thin air. Okay. So I have one final theory. And with the caveat that this is just wild speculation and we have no evidence for it. Fanfic, fanfic, fanfic. Kelly. <laughs> I am dying to hear the wild speculations. Okay. (laughs) So, like I said, hold that thought from earlier. The other way that a woman from more modest means would have been able to live a life like Miss Berry's would be if she was a mistress to an extremely wealthy man. Oh, yeah. Uh So, did you ever watch the movie Gigi or read the novella? No. It's a cute movie and it's a short book. I mean, I recommend both. Um, It's kind of a tangent, but this is is useful context. So in that book, Gigi is a young girl, and she's literally being groomed for a career as a courtesan by her grandmother and her great aunt, both of them who had been former courtesans. So Gigi, her mother, and her grandmother all live together in this like adorable little apartment in Paris and this life of sort of shabby gentility. And they're basically existing off of the gifts of the men that her grandmother entertained like way back when. But meanwhile, Gigi's aunt Alicia is wildly wealthy and lives a life of elegance and refinement. I mean, she is like the Aunt Josephine of that book. Oh, okay. And all of her wealth comes from former lovers who set her up in this grand home, showered her in jewelry and finery, and kept her in elegant style throughout all their affairs. And it was a style so grand that even in her later years, she can still live opulently and splendidly. Ooh, okay. Making a really nice living like that as a mistress would have been hard work. 
sex work was unpredictable and unsafe in the 19th century, but with the right benefactor or benefactors, it was possible. And among the upper classes in the 19th century, marriage was more often for the consolidation of wealth and power than for love, so it was much more common for wealthy husbands to have a mistress. And if the man was rich enough, he would buy a house for his mistress and he would pay her, not just with money, but also clothes and wine and jewelry and art. And a smart woman, like Gigi's Aunt Alicia, or potentially Diana's Aunt Josephine, would live a comfortable and elegant life this way. Not only that, but the 18th and 19th centuries had many well-known courtesans who became wealthy and powerful in their own rights. One of the most famous was Madame du Barry, Louis XV's mistress, who lived at Versailles with the French court and the emperor's family. Wow. She had her own apartments, but she was literally living in the palace with them. (laughs) Wow. And historians found out that she was a part of a lot of decision-making that happened. Louis would come back to her and like over pillow talk, they would talk about matters of state. So she was like truly influential in the French government at that time. Okay. Go Madame Dubarry. Yeah. <laughs> and so I don't know if it's that shared last name or what, but I do, when I think Madame Dubarry and Miss Barry, it all just sort of collided in my brain one day. And I was like, oh, Diana Santa is a former courtesan. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, just to be clear. Other than being rich and single, there is zero evidence for this in the text. It is just a theory. And of course, we both know that if Diana's mother or any of the Avonlea ladies thought that Miss Barry was ever a kept woman, they would not let the girls go anywhere near her because of the prejudice against sex work. I mean, come on. Mrs. Barry wasn't going to let Diana hang out with Anne after the raspberry cordial incident. Oh, yeah. There is no way. Not <laughs> letting her precious her. daughter hang out with the former courtesan. Nope. <laughs> I mean, the fact is Maud just doesn't tell us why Aunt Josephine is wealthy. Like you said, it was probably just convenient. So Anne would have someone rich in her orbit and could compare her life in Avonlea to city life. But it's still an interesting mystery. And when I think of Aunt Josephine and her sort of world-weary outlook, I do wonder if maybe that path to wealth wasn't all sunshine and roses and easy inheritances. Hmm. Miss Barry is such a fascinating character to speculate about. I love filling in the gaps with our imaginations. Anne would definitely approve. I mean, not of the sex work tangent, but she would definitely approve of some sort of deep and dark backstory for Miss Barry. A high, a highly romantic, yes. Yes. I fully expect you to write your fanfic about Miss Barry at the height of her courtesan era. I, I would think buy that book. So interesting, right? I would buy that book. Well, let's pivot. And let's put on our most elegant puffed sleeves and discuss a favorite Miss Barry moment or two. I mean, Miss Barry is really only in this book a bit, so we don't really have any Miss Barry moments we haven't really covered in this episode. But I do love that when Anne is wondering how she can possibly return to common life again after being transported in artistic glory by hearing the prima donna sing, Miss Barry recommends that having ice cream might help Anne. And it does! There are very few things in life a bowl of ice cream can't cure. Well, and I just love the mental image of her and Diana and Miss Barry all at the ice cream parlor, like in the middle of the night. It definitely reminds me of vacations to New York when I was a little kid and you're just kind of on a different time zone and a different schedule. And it is, it's like this magical out of your own life experience. Yes. I'm so glad Anne got a moment of that. We really do love Miss Barry, if you can't tell by this episode. (laughs) I wasn't even sure we could fill up a whole episode with a character who has as little time on the page as she does, but clearly she made an impact on us and on Anne. 
One thing that we touched on a little that I just want to draw more attention to is how involved and invested Miss Barry is in Anne's education. She allows Anne to stay with her when she's taking the Queen's entrance exams. Anne Miss Barry wanted Anne to live with her while she was at Queen's, but the school was too far away. So Miss Barry goes the extra mile and finds a boarding house for Anne to stay at. Honestly, I wouldn't be surprised if Miss Barry offered to help pay as well, although Matthew and Marilla were proud that they had enough save to educate Anne. Miss Barry goes to Anne's graduation, and we all know that graduations are the most boring, and she leaves Anne money upon her death, allowing Anne to further her education still. Miss Barry understands that Anne's intelligence will take her wherever she wants to go, as long as she has education and access, and Miss Barry is determined to make that happen for her. We love Miss Barry as a role model and as someone who can just give Anne that extra little boost that she so deserves. Yes. So moving on to our inspired by recommendations, here is how Miss Barry inspires us. For me, I have to shout out the Rich Anti-Supreme community and their extremely cool merch, which is available at richantisupreme.com. This was a community created by Rachel Cargill, and it lives on Instagram and Facebook. And if you don't know who Rachel Cargill is, she is a writer, a philanthropist, an activist. She has done amazing work in the anti-racist spaces. She Her work centers around the reimagining of womanhood, solidarity, and self, and how we are in relationship with ourselves and others. She created this thing called The Great Unlearn, which I think that some people may have heard of, but it's a self-paced, donation-based, anti-racist learning community. And she has The Great Unlearn for young learners. She has her hands in so many different pots. And so it's kind of amazing to me that on top of all of that, she created this community called Rich Anti-Supreme. And now this is very much named from the trope that Aunt Josephine embodies, the trope of like the wealthy aunt who is like <laughs> kind of confused by the children in her world. But actual monetary riches are not necessary to be a rich auntie supreme. Rich aunties supreme are happily child-free women who are rich in time, intention, passions, and communities. And, you know, (laughs) those women play such important roles in families' lives if you are lucky enough to have some of those in your lives. It's really true. And I think that the rich auntie supreme community helped me sort of coalesce some of my ideas about what it means to be in community with families, right? It's not just about, oh, well, I'm child-free, therefore, like, ew, kids are gross, I hate them. I don't hate kids, I adore children. So finding sort of that middle ground between being a mother or not a mother, and then there's that middle road of, like, being an aunt. So this is an amazing group for anyone else who is child-free by choice and wondering sort of, well, what does that mean? What is my place in the community? What is my role? What can I give to families to help support them? And then where is it okay for me to be intentional about my own time and invest in my own hobbies or my own career, developing my own self? It's really interesting So many unique and wonderful perspectives. I really, really recommend the Rich Anti-Supreme community for any child-free by choice women. And one thing they do on a monthly basis, which I think is super, super fun, is they'll do a thread called Because I Don't Have Kids. And it's like, because I don't have kids, I got to do this this month, right? And I will say a lot of it is like travel. Because I don't have kids, my husband and I bought first class tickets to Bali and we went on a great vacation or whatever. But some of the ones around the holidays were really funny for me. You know, everything from because I don't have kids, I was able to give back and adopt a family for the holidays or whatever, or donate more of my money to because I don't have kids, I didn't have to wait in line for Santa and I have no idea what Elf on the Shelf is. (laughs) I know, Kelly, that you are pretty 
thankful that you don't know what Elf on the Shelf is. Oh, yeah. If I never have to know, I'd be perfectly happy. Uh (laughs) We are so lucky to have you as one of Alice's rich anti-Supremes. Alice is very lucky to have quite a few of those folks in her life. Yes, she is. Alice is rich and rich anti-Supreme. Much like Anne, right? And maybe there's a little bit being an only child in particular lends itself to that and the, the kind of lifestyle. But I also think what an amazing gift you and some of the other women that she has in her life are to her because you guys get to be those extra special people who choose her. And Aunt Josephine is a really an amazing character in this book for that reason. When we talk about the people in this book inspiring Anne, I mean, we can't do that without talking about how the way these people inspired us. The fact that there are so many great examples of single women in this book who have relationships with children and who have relationships with their communities. I mean, that is something that even as an adult, I look at and I find myself inspired by. I love it. Well, that is a most excellent recommendation. Rachel Cargill is a treasure. I've learned so much from following her. Oh yeah, just follow her. Even if, you know, regardless of whether or not you have kids, follow Rachel Cargill on Instagram. She's amazing. Exactly. You don't have to be a rich anti-Supreme to (laughs) follow her and get some other amazing, amazing things out of it. So I was trying to decide on what Aunt Josephine inspired by me. And one of the things that comes to mind immediately is how I'm inspired inspired by my aunts. So I know Ms. Barry is an aunt's aunt, but since she's often referred to as Aunt Josephine, she very much fills that role in Anne's life. And while my aunts aren't wealthy ladies living in big mansions, I am blessed to have a lot of them by blood and by marriage, 10. I have 10 aunts, all of whom are wonderful, supportive, interesting women who have been such a source of love throughout my life. But also like Aunt Josephine, So many of them modeled for me lots of different ways to be an adult woman in the world. Mm -hmm. Many of them are unmarried or have somewhat more unconventional relationships. And some of them are married with kids as well. All of them are interesting and creative and kind and loving and just the backbone of our family, I really think. And it's been such a gift, I've not only for them as kind of a group, but also the individual relationships I got to have at, with them at different phases in my life. I have the aunt that lived in New York City when I was in college and really was my rich auntie supreme, taking me to meals and to shows that I could never have really afforded. She absolutely saw through my transparent attempts of like just dropping by her office during lunch hour, being like, oh, hey, just thought I'd come back. <laughs> oh, you haven't eaten lunch yet? Sure, I've got time. <laughs> she's I like, you're that? wasting away. She's like, can I please feed you, child? Yeah. <laughs> did, did, did she take me to lunch at least once a week? I think so. Love that. Yes. But also so many of them at different times in my life that have really been able to be there and flesh out that community, especially when my parents, when they had other things going on, right? So that they didn't have to do it all alone. When I hear you talk about your aunts and the role and impact they've had in your life, I really think that you have had this 
incredible matriarchy surrounding you so much of your life and just these women who kind of have banded together and are the backbone of your family in this really big way you know making sure that you guys get together annually for family trips and finding ways to connect with not just your generation but your kids and your cousin's kids and your sister's kids like making sure they're involved in the next generation too that is the kind of incredible efforts at kin keeping that a group of really committed women can get done Yeah, I'm really, really thankful. It helps, you know, my dad was one of five and my mom is one of seven. It helps that there's a lot of them. (laughs) It helps that there's a lot. And between the ants by blood or the ones that have married into our family, all of them have been really powerful and wonderful and interesting. And I do feel really, really lucky that both sides of my family have been able to give that to me. I think that's been really fundamental in shaping who I am and why connection with other women is so important to me. Yeah. Sadly, I know that not everybody can just develop an ant community like mine. So (laughs) I will also recommend fancy ice cream because everybody can have ice cream and everybody should have ice cream. So I definitely, even if it's not 11 o'clock at night, find your local fancy ice cream place. I like salt and straw in Culver City or Jenny's ice cream in Playa Vista near near me. And they all have unique seasonal flavors, which I love. And also there's something really special about treating yourself to an ice cream cone. It doesn't even have to be an occasion. Yeah, you owe it to yourself to find what is the fanciest ice cream in your city and go out and try it. And that reminds me, Reagan, next time you're up my way, we have to go to Bulgarini Gelato in Altadena. Yes, please. Bulgarini Gelato is owned by two Italian brothers, and they import a lot of their ingredients from Italy to make their gelato. I love a good gelato. We come out your way fairly often. Yeah. I'm I'm still dreaming of this amazing gelato I had from a place in downtown LA that I think is no longer there. And now they're like selling their, their gelato to small shops or whatever. But mm-hmm. I had this Pluot uh, gelato. Yeah, gelato. It was so amazing. It was so good. I'm still dreaming about it. Anyway, yes. Now that we've made you hungry, go have some ice cream. <laughs> Go enjoy your ice cream. And that's all for today, friends. Please like and subscribe to us anywhere you listen to podcasts so other kindred spirits can find us. We would love it if you left us a little review as well. And please join us next time as we talk about the girls of Avonlea. Bye, friends. 